Good morning. My name is Rachel Miller, and I'll be reading our sermon text this morning. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 11:27 through uh, chapter 12, verse 3. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no, ch no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thank you, Rachel. And good morning again to everybody, and early Merry Christmas. Uh, today we're beginning what, you know, traditionally the Christmas season, or the, some call it the Advent season of the church, where we take about four weeks leading up to now and Christmas to think about the great uh, themes in the Bible related to the birth of Jesus. And I'm excited to do that, uh, especially at our one-year anniversary, because it, it gives us an opportunity to talk about one of our favorite themes around here, which is hope. I mean, our, our church, after all, is called Greater Hope. Uh, we believe the Bible, if it gives you anything, if you truly believe in Christ, it, it gives you a whole new kind of hope for your life. Uh, but you see, one of the problems, I think, when it comes to Christmas uh, is we, in various ways, disconnect it from our everyday life in, in different ways. I mean, we, either we think Christmas is just entirely a myth, uh, or we think of it as a true event that really did happen in history, but it happened 2,000 years ago, and after all, that's 2,000 years ago, and here I am living today. What in the world could that possibly do to change my life? Sometimes Christmas and the Christmas story is kind of like a vacation that you take. Y'all know how it is to go on vacation, and you're at the beach, you're at Disney World, the world feels right. Uh, you love your family. You know, everything they do makes you happy. Uh, everything is, is, is wonderful. The birds are singing in a new kind of way. But then you have to come back home, right? Uh, and you have to go back to your everyday reality and, and face it. And when you get back, you realize, I really haven't changed on this vacation. I'm still the same person I always was. And my life circumstances, the way my life is, also has not changed. And so I'm right back at it. Can't Christmas be that way? Christmas both as a holiday and as a message, can it be that way where we, we kind of think it's a temporary escape from reality? I want us to see over the next four weeks in this series, we're calling it the promise of Christmas as we go through really the highlights of the entire Bible. Uh, all that God has said, you know, in four weeks, really quick, all that God has said leading up to the birth of Jesus, what he is promising to do. I want you to see that Christmas is not just a temporary escape from reality, Christmas can, by faith, become your new reality. <laughs> Christmas can shape the way your life is. Christmas can shape your hope right at the core of who you are. It's not just a myth. It's not just a one-time event. It's something that God has been working on all throughout history leading up to Jesus. And it's something now, after Jesus has come, all these 2,000 years, God has been inviting us in. 
and applying the work that he got done through his son to our hearts. Remember last week when we ended the, the series that we were on in Romans? The very last sentence, Paul said this. He says, the gospel is the message about Jesus Christ, right? The gospel is the message about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. But now, that's a key word, now revealed and made known. That now, I want to tell you, is Christmas. For long ages past, God had kept this mystery. He had revealed his son, the, the coming of himself into the world to save his people. He had revealed it as a mystery through various promises, through various things that he had said and done. But now, at Christmas Day, when Jesus Christ was born into the world, he fully revealed his heart for us. And now he invites us into the gospel. Same thing in our good news verse this morning from Galatians 4. Paul says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. The crisp Christmas is the set time. The set time had fully come. Well, this morning we're going to start our journey uh, looking at the story of this man named Abraham. Uh, as we were reading, you may have thought, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Everything. Uh, Abraham received in, in seed form the, one of the first promises of what God would do at Christmas. We read it this, just now. In seed form, he received the promise of what God was going to do in Christmas, and it changed his life. And you and I this morning can see this. Because of Christmas, because it's true, you and I can live in hope too. Because God kept his promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago. That's how faithful and sure our God is, okay? So let's look at three things this morning. Uh, from these promises that God gives Abraham. You can see them there in your worship bulletin. Uh, first of all, we're going to see something about the problem of hope, hopelessness. Uh, there was a reason Abraham needed a promise, and there's a reason you and I need it as well. Secondly, we're going to see the promise of hope. You know, God what was telling Abraham about Christmas, believe it or not. We're going to see why that's true and how that affects us. And then thirdly, the path of hopefulness. What do we learn from Abraham about how living in hope can begin to change who you are? It's not just a temporary escape from reality. It can become your new reality. Okay, so first of all, the problem of hopefulness. It's really important for us to remember the, the context of, of what God says to Abraham. I mean, if you look back at chapter 12, verse 1 in the reading this morning, you can see clearly the first thing that God says to Abraham is kind of shocking. Uh, you might not think this is the first thing God would say to someone when he first meets them. But look at what it says there in, in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, his name gets changed later, so I'm just going to call him Abraham the whole time. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here's the first thing God says to Abraham. It's kind of shocking. He says, Abraham, you're going to have to get out. You're going to have to leave your current situation, your current way of life you got to get out. I mean, isn't that kind of weird? I mean, have you ever met somebody and the first thing you did was tell them to leave their family and come follow you around and say, hey, I'm going to show you what, I, what I'm going to show you later, but for right now, just get out. <laughs> I mean, it would be crazy when you first meet someone to do this, but this is the way the God of the universe operates. This is the way he operates. When he comes into our lives, just like the way he did with Abraham, he first gives an evacuation order. Now, why would he do that? I mean, if you think about it, we in Florida know this really well because every time we have hurricane season, there's always a time when we have an evacuation order somewhere in our state. Why do you have an evacuation order? 
The only reason is because there's some grave danger in the place where you currently are. And if you don't get out of the place where you currently are, that danger is going to meet you head on. It's going to overwhelm you. It's going to completely swallow you up. God is saying that same thing to Abraham. Abraham, there is something deadly wrong with the world that you live in. There is something dead wrong, Abraham, with the way that you live in the world that you're living in. I'm going to need you, if you're going to follow me and receive my promise, I'm going to need you to pack your bags and get out, out of your country, out of your kindred, and out of your father's house, and come and follow me to the land that I will show you. Now that, of course, raises the question, what was so bad about Abraham's life? I mean, what was so bad about Abraham's world? Well, there at the end of chapter 11... Uh, The reason I had us read all those names, thank you, Rachel, for bravely, again, reading through a list of names. In that list, you get some really good information about Abraham's world and his life. The first thing you see is Abraham's world is messed up because it's full of pain, suffering, and death. I mean, it's amazing what the writer of this book, Moses, chooses to tell us about Abraham. It says that Abraham was one of three boys born to a man named Terah. And the youngest of those boys, Haran, died at a very young age. Tragically, he died. We're not, we're not told how, but he died. He left behind a wife and children. The situation was so desperate that Abraham adopted one of his sons named Lot because there was nobody else to take care of this orphan child. It was so bad that the middle son of Terah, Nahor, married one of his brother Haran's daughters, if you're following me. He married one of his nieces, which is obviously very weird to us. But it just shows how desperate the situation was. There was this pain, there was this suffering, there was this death, and all that they had to turn to were these these desperate measures of caring for one another. And then it tells us there in verse 30, twice it says the same thing over to show just how painful the situation was. It says that Abraham's wife Sarah was barren. That is, she had no child. I believe it says it twice because that's how doubly weighty it weighed on Sarah's heart and on Abraham's heart. I mean, it's a difficult thing in any age to experience that barrenness, infertility. But at this time, it was especially difficult because your self-worth as a person, especially as a woman at this time, was often weighed by how many children you were able to bear, how many children you were able to bring up. And here's this family where people are dying young, Children are having to be taken in. Marriages are having to be made just to survive. And real children from the the womb of Sarah through Abraham are not able to come. A world of pain, a world of suffering, a world of death. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Is our world any way like Abraham's world? On top of that, we, we see a little clue there in verse 28. It says they lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. That was the place where Abraham was born and raised. Ur is the name of a city, a very big city at the time, probably one of the biggest cities. It was on the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. It was huge. It was, it was wealthy, but it was also a religious center. It was a place of paganism. Uh, one archaeologist found this giant temple that was built right in the heart of Ur at the time of Abraham, and it was a temple dedicated to the sun god and the moon goddess. And everybody in that place, including Abraham's family, we learn later in the Bible that Abraham and his family worshipped other gods when they lived on the river, it says in Joshua chapter 24. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. What was up with that? Well, paganism always is this. It's trying to find self-hope by my own efforts. That's what paganism always is. 
I know I need certain things in life. I need bread. I need some clothes. I need somewhere to live. I need some gainful employment. I, I recognize as a human being there's some God or gods behind all those things. And so I do everything I can do to earn those goodies from those gods. And that, that's essentially what paganism is. I'm working to gain a living from the gods that I make up so that I make sure that I have the security in the things that I need. That was what Abraham and his family were steeped in. They were living in a world that tempted them to hopelessness because of pain, suffering, and death. And they were trying in all the wrong ways. They were looking in all the wrong places to find their hope. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but Abraham, whom the Bible calls the father of all believers, he was a pagan by birth. He was a man desperately trying to find hope, but doing it in all the wrong ways when God showed up and he said, Abraham, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to know my ways, if you're going to receive my promises, you are going to have to get out of your life. You're going to have to find a whole new way of living that I'm going to give you as a gift. And I want to tell you all this morning, that is exactly on Christmas and every other time, that is exactly what God calls us to do too. Because our world is not that much different. We live in a world of pain and suffering and death, don't we? It's pretty simple. It's pretty, pretty straightforward that we do. But we also live in a world. It might not be pagan in name, but it's a world in which we're doing kind of the same thing Abraham and his family were doing. We don't worship the sun or the moon, but we do have a vision of the good life. And we work ourselves to death. We worry ourselves to death. We run ourselves ragged trying to get the good life. And when we sit down to think about what is the good life, all we can list out are things that are temporary and created. If I get that paycheck with that many zeros, my life's going to click together. That's the good life. If I get that house, that's the good life. If my family situation is like that family situation, that's the good life. If I get that promotion, if, if I reach that status in my community or at my job, that's the good life. And we run ourselves ragged to get it. Y'all, that is really no different, really, than paganism. I mean, I, I know that might sound shocking because everybody does it. doesn't matter if you consider yourself a believer or not. Everybody in the room can find some way in which they really are trying to find hope their own way rather than simply seeking it the way God wants to give it. The Christmas message, though, tells us this. If your hope is in something that you're going to lose when you die, it's a dead hope. If your hope this morning is in something that you're going to lose when you die, it is a dead hope. It will not last. It, it, will, not, it will not give you the satisfaction you're looking for. Uh, there's this uh, author who's not a Christian, so he's not writing to convince us of the gospel or anything like that. But he writes about American culture, and he wrote a book called The Real American Dream. And he said this. For people to have hope, they have to see that their life fits into a story that's bigger than them, that's headed somewhere. In order, the definition of hope is that you see your life fitting into a big story that's actually heading somewhere. And he says that the crisis at the heart of American culture is we used to look to God for that story, but then we doubted God, so we looked to our nation for that story, manifest destiny. I'm an American. It's great to be an American. But now, he says, in our society today, we look to ourselves for that story. And again, this man, not a Christian, not trying to convince us of the gospel, says this, it is impossible to find yourself a part of a bigger story when you're only looking to yourself for that story. Isn't that right? 
If you're looking to yourself, you can't find something bigger than yourself. And so we have a crisis of hope in our society. Uh, the, the country singer Casey Musgraves expresses this really well in her song, Merry-Go-Round. Have you ever heard that song? She says life is like a merry-go-round. Around and round it goes. Where it stops, no one knows. And so all we can do is just buy a little more distraction as we go along. All we can do is just find little ways to, to sort of numb the pain and make it feel like it's a little bit better than it is. We have, in other words, she's saying we have no long-term solution. It's just round and round and round. In that environment, in that kind of world, the world of Abraham, the world of us, God shines the light of the birth of his son. He says, our problem with hopelessness this morning is a personal problem. It's personal. God has offered us the real good life, and we says, no, thank you, God. I've got my own way. Thank you very much. I'm going to go find it. I'm going to go paint the picture of it and work myself to death to try to get it. No, thank you, God. I will not receive your gift. And yet God comes. Look at how he comes to Abraham so personally. A man whose heart had to be heavy because of the death and the pain and the loss and the barrenness of his life. And God says, Abraham, go. Get out. Turn around. And actually, all throughout the Bible, that is exactly the call of God. It's what the Bible calls repentance. It's getting out of our natural way of life. It's, it's throwing down the right to live life my way so that my hands are open to receive life God's way. Life as God wants to give it to me. So that's the first thing this morning, the, the problem of hopelessness. But I, I want you to see that God doesn't just, this is the second thing, he doesn't just tell Abraham to go and get out. He gives Abraham the ray of light in the form of his promises of hope. There in verse 2, I want you to look at it. He says, I will. You might want to underline every time he says, I will, because he says it a bunch, right? I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's the great promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, what in the world does these promises have to do with Christmas? Everything in the world. Because this is God saying, look, this world that I'm calling you, Abraham, to get out of, all the problems that are in this world I'm calling you to get out of, these are problems you simply cannot solve on your own. The best you can do, Abraham, the only thing you can do is get out of life your way and come to me and receive from me, not the, hey, Abraham, you need to go do this, this, and this to fix the world, but to receive from God that, Abraham, I will do this, this, and this to fix the world. In fact, if you read the story of Genesis, these two sentences are amazingly hopeful in comparison to everything that's come before this. I mean, from page one or two of the Bible, when the first human beings decide to turn away from God and go their own way, it's just curse, 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 curse. In fact, I read five times in the first 11 chapters that God has to, in some way, curse the world, curse humans, put it under, a, put it under the weight and heaviness of sin because people have rebelled against him. And here, notice it, just in two verses, God undoes all the curses with five equal blessings. Five curses. Now in two verses, five blessings to Abraham. It really is the song we, read at the, we sang at the beginning, Joy to the World, where it says when Jesus was born, as far as the curse is found, so he makes his blessings flow. 
When God himself entered the world to intervene into our situation, he is able to make as much blessing flow through the world as there was cursing, in fact, and even more. We just got through going through Romans. It said in Romans that where sin abounded in the world, God's grace superabounded. You've got to imagine it. As Abraham is hearing these promises, what's this man thinking? I mean, God says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Remember what we just said. Abraham's wife was barren. He had no children. And he was not a young man. He was 75 years old. you got to kind of laugh at that. God says, you're going to have so many children you can't count them. And he's a 75-year-old man with a barren wife who's about 65, 70 years old. There's some humor in that, isn't there? Because God is saying, look, what you can't even imagine being possible, if I intervene into this world, it's possible. Same thing with the land. I mean, he promised him a land. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation in verse 2. A nation is not just a people. It's a people who are rooted in a land with a certain culture, a nation among other nations. Later, God's going to say, Abraham, look around you at Canaan, all this land that you see, everything your foot touches, I'm going to give to your descendants. Again, what's Abraham thinking? This man is a nomad. He owns not a single piece of property. All he's doing is going from place to place at this point in a tent. And God says, one day, Abraham, you're going to have a nation. You're going to own a big land. Your family is going to be a nation among the nations. And then finally, he promises him a blessing. Not just any blessing, but a worldwide blessing there in verse 2. Or in verse 3, excuse me. He says, I'm going to bless you at the end of verse 3 so that in you, in your family, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to make of you a nation so that every nation can come back to me. God is intervening into the world. He's promising this to Abraham. I'm coming in to solve the problem. And I'm going to solve the problem at its very roots. At the very heart of the problem. Now this morning, I don't know what you think the, the most important thing that could be done in our world to solve all the problems is. But I, I would offer to you that what God is promising to Abraham is that very thing. The thing that would cause everything to click into place is not a new paycheck for you. It's not a promotion for you. It's not even like political world peace that might be attained. The greatest thing is that God's people might be gathered together in God's place under God's rule and blessing again. And that's what God, that's the very thing that God says, I'm going to do through you, Abraham. And when Jesus came into the world, he was the great son of Abraham. And when he made God's blessings flow, that's how he did it. He was calling his people. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come back to the God who made you. I'm dying on the cross for your sins so that you could be accepted into the family. I'm rising again so that the death and the hopelessness of this world might actually be undone one day so that all things might be made new. That's exactly what Jesus came into the world to do. And so I love it in, in, in the, the Gospels in Matthew 2 when the three wise men come and they find Jesus. And they give him the, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. You've, you've no doubt heard this story. Three expensive gifts for a, a child who would one day be king. And guess who they were given by? Not by some Israelites who were sitting around reading the Bible all day. They were given by three wise men from the east. Pagan dudes. I mean, guys who probably barely read the Bible. They just read some horoscopes. And somehow, in God's grace, God used those horoscopes. This is not a speech in favor of horoscopes. It's just saying, look how gracious God is. 
He used those horoscopes to lead these men to the, to the promised child. And when they got there, they said, you know what? Joy to the world. <laughs> what God, I mean, what you're telling me is God promised this 2,000 years prior to Abraham? Wow. I want to give all of my treasure to this child. And so you and I today also can look at the story of Christmas and not just see, okay, random event, random baby born in a random place, singing some great songs, watching some Christmas movies on Hallmark, but we can look at Christmas and say, wow, the thrill of hope, the thrill of hope. The weary world can now rejoice because as my favorite writer says, the God of the universe has entered, he's the rightful king, but he's entered this world as enemy occupied territory. He entered this world in disguise. And now, through Jesus, he's inviting all of us to join his campaign of sabotage. <laughs> the rightful king, who, who has not lost this world, but has certainly gotten into a battle over this world, has now entered into it to deal it its final blow so that you and I might be rescued and brought back into his family. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? But I know some of y'all might be thinking this. Okay, this is where I really just can't do organized religion because that's just way too narrow, what you're telling me right now. You're actually trying to tell me that the only way someone can know God is through Jesus. What about everybody else? How is it only through Jesus? And I just want you to notice, I want you, I want you to notice, you're asking the wrong question. You're totally asking the wrong question. The, the question when it comes to religious faith is not, is it organized or not? That's actually kind of an irrelevant question. <laughs> The question is not even, you know, uh, is, it, is there only one way or are there many options? Here's the real question you ought to be asking. Is it based on what I can do in my own strength or is it based on what God can do? Is it based on what I have invented and made up in my head? Or is it based on something that God himself has begun to reveal through long ages past? But now at Christmas has fully been revealed because God himself has become a human being to redeem his people to gather his people back to himself. Now that, y'all, is really the real question you ought to be asking. Is it based on my strength or God's strength? And then when you look at Jesus again, thinking about that, you think, okay, it is kind of narrow. I mean, the doorway is narrow. There is one God who has revealed himself in one way, and he, he calls all of us to respond in a certain way to that one way. Okay, you've got to walk through a doorway. But that actually is where the narrowness stops. Because God said to Abraham, look, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, whosoever will believe in Jesus can go through that doorway. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how hopeless you are. You can walk through that doorway. And then on the other side of that doorway is life forevermore. Is freedom unimaginable. Is blessing like there has never been on the world. That's not very narrow, is it? So the only thing narrow about Christianity is that it's saying you can't just pick and choose your own way. You can't just do it yourself kind of religion. Figure it out on your own. You have to receive it from God as a revelation from him. You have to receive it from God as his personal intervention into your life. He's showing up at your doorstep and he's saying, get out right now and come and follow me and I will show you who I am. And if you walk through that door, you will get a hope that is personal it's concrete, it's real in your life. It's a hope that's wonderful. It's a hope that is assured and will last forever. That's a pretty good trade, isn't it? And so actually for someone to say, I'm not coming to Jesus because being a Christian is too narrow is like the prisoner 
being, uh, being offered release who says, I don't want to leave this beautiful big courtyard in the prison because that doorway and hallway to get out is just too tiny for me. It's too constricting. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah, it's constricting. No, the, the prison warden doesn't say, here's 25 doors to choose from. He says one door. But notice, this is where the constriction really is. The true freedom is found on the other side. And God, in, in, in the gospel, God, through the birth of his son, Jesus, has opened up the door. And he says to all of us, do you want to know real freedom? Do you want to know a different kind of life? Come through Christ. Come through my son. Believe in him. Trust in him. Hope against hope, as Abraham had to do, and experience that. Now, thirdly, this morning, I want you to see that Abraham shows us also the path of hopefulness. Abraham's life absolutely radically changed when he got this promise. And these things will be, there's two things here that I want you to see that are pretty quick. But they're really important because they kind of give you a way of, of asking yourself, am I living by hope in, in Jesus in the Christmas story and message, or am I still to some degree or another trying to put my hope in created things? The first thing I want you to see is that when Abraham truly believed, he began to trust God even with what he did not understand about God. I want you to see that. He began to trust God with even the things he did not understand about God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12 again. God says, Abraham, leave everything that you know that's familiar to you, everything that you understand, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. Now, what's God, I mean, think about that for a minute. What is God actually saying to Abraham? Abraham, get up, let's go. Where are we going, God? You'll see. Just come on. Abraham, get up and go. I'm going to show you a land that I'm going to give you one day. Okay, what land, God? Can you show me on a map? No, I'll show you when we get there. Just come on. And you know what happened? Abraham actually did it. <laughs> he actually walked out of his father's house and actually made the journey, the Bible says later, knowing not where he was going, yet he followed God along the way. And right there, if you could see it this morning, right there is a beautiful definition of true faith. It's not checking your mind at the door saying, I'm not going to think <clears throat> about God. I'm not going to ask questions. It's not that. Abraham asked plenty of questions. But it's saying this, the questions come after the trusting. The questions follow the basic disposition of the heart to say, God, you know better than I do. I can't live my life my own way. I've got to yield to you. One early church father said it this way. If you're, if you're trying to understand then you will understand if you trust. But if you're trying to understand so that you will trust God, you'll never trust. If you have to have it all figured out, and some of y'all are like this, I gotta know everything about God, I gotta know everything about the Bible, I gotta know everything God's gonna call me to do, I gotta know everything that's gonna happen in my life before I'm gonna begin to walk out in obedience to what God has told me to do. And what Abraham is showing us, what the, the Christmas story tells us is that will never be possible. Why? Because God doesn't offer you a relationship with an encyclopedia. He offers you a relationship with himself. <laughs> and every single relationship you've ever had, you've never said, hey, I'll marry you if you'll tell me everything that's going to happen in our lives from here forward. And you're going to assure me of everything that you're going to do for me from here forward. You would never get a relationship that way. A relationship always works. Trust first grow in understanding. Yield your life over and then grow in understanding. That's why it says Abraham walked 
not knowing where he was going. Everywhere he went, he just, he asked God questions, and sometimes he got answers, sometimes he didn't, but everywhere he went, he worshiped the Lord. Everywhere he went, he built an altar to God. That word worship means worth-ship. Everywhere Abraham went, he, he, he told God how much he was worth to him. How trustworthy you are, God. How praiseworthy you are, God. How love-worthy you are, God. And, and some of y'all need to hear that this morning because right now you're holding back on God on the praise because there's something you don't understand. And God may be asking you right now in the midst of what you don't understand to throw up the worth anyway. <laughs> And, and to go ahead and say, I'm going to trust the Lord anyway, and I'm going, to, I'm going to depend that he knows what he's doing. And at some point, if he wants to, he's going to show me the answers that I'm seeking. If not, I don't need to know the answers anyway. Because God knows exactly the things that need to go on in my life. That is what Abraham learned. Now, secondly, we'll, we'll, we'll flow through this one. Abraham had to learn how to be generous even when it hurt him. You say, okay, well, where in the world do you see that? Uh, look there at the end of verse 2. This is a very key phrase in the story. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing, Abraham. Here's a principle we talk about all the time at Greater Hope, and I don't want to ever stop talking about it. God's grace always comes to you on the way to someone else in God's plan. He's always wanting that. God always picks chooses us, draws us to himself, builds a relationship with us through his son so that we will become like him. That is, we will become people who are generous and who give the things that God has given to us. And so God sets the tone for it 4,000 years ago right here with Abraham. He says, as I bless you, Abraham, you're going to bless others. As I treat you with mercy, you're going to treat people with mercy. As I forgive and guide, as I'm patient with you and all of your failings, Abraham, you also are going to be patient with others in all of their failings. And so this morning, a great way to ask, is the hope of Christmas alive in my heart is, how much do you want to give? And I'm not just talking giving to the church. I'm talking about giving to people in your life. I'm talking about sharing whatever it is, not just money, just sharing yourself. Sharing all the things that God has given you with people in your life who desperately need it. You know, it's no accident, y'all, that Christmas has developed into a holiday of giving. That's not an accident. It might be today because of advertisers and consumerism, but it originally started that way because if God gave such a costly gift in his son to us, then isn't it so fitting that we just lavishly give, 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 give. Jesus taught us that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so Abraham, when he went out from this, if you were to read the rest of his story, several times he's called to give in a costly way. That little boy Lot that I told you about, the boy that he had adopted because his brother died, his, his nephew, Lot was not a very good decision maker. <laughs> and Lot would turn out to be a, a man who would put himself in very uncomfortable and dangerous situations every time Abraham went in and rescued his boy Lot. Every time he went in and forgave him. Every time he went in and just hugged him and gave him grace. Why did Abraham do that? Because that's the thing God did to Abraham. God found Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans bowing down before the moon goddess, and God says, I'm not leaving you here. I'm not leaving you with your dead hopes. I'm embracing you and I'm drawing you near. And that turned Abraham and it turned Sarah into a couple who loved to find other people who were caught 
without hope. And they love to go to them, and they love to embrace them in their arms. Y'all, Abraham tells us Christmas is not just some faraway myth. Christmas is not just some thing that we think about once a year, and it's like a vacation that doesn't do anything to our real lives. It can invade your heart and change who you are. It can set you free from the desire of our culture to control. I've got to understand everything. I've got to control everything in my life. And it can turn you into a person who trusts the Lord. It can save you from materialism and consumerism, also a very big God of our culture. And it can turn you into a person who really knows, hey, I love, you know what I love better than receiving? Than stacking up and piling up and saving up? I love giving. Because the God of the universe, the God of love, the God of joy, the God of peace, that God also is a God of generosity. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy today. Lord, um, just thank you that we get over the next four weeks to think particularly about this part of the gospel, that Jesus was born and that he brings a hope from outside of this world into this world. God, I pray for my friends here today. I pray for our friends who who aren't with us, Lord, those that we love and know in our families, our, our neighbors, our coworkers. Um, the, the people that, that, are, that are very dear to our hearts, some of them believe, some of them don't believe. We pray that, that somehow, Lord, you would move in their lives this Christmas. Confront them like you did Abraham. Confront us like you did him. Tell us to get out and give us a hope, Lord. Fill our hearts. Shape our hearts today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.